Hello and welcome to this very special episode of An Irishman Abroad with Dr. Alan Desmond, the best-selling author and doctor behind The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, 28 Days to a Happier Gut and a Healthier You. Now I know you've probably heard it all before. We should all be eating plant-based. What are we doing uh, eating meat at all? We should never touch animal products. I mean, it does make some people's eyes roll into the back of their head. But then when you look at it at all, if you examine any sort of evidence or read any article by anyone with any grain of knowledge in the in the area, you come to realize that maybe you're doing yourself a disservice by not at least trying veganery as uh, the kind of clunky pun name for this month has arrived at. Uh, It has to there has to be something here. So with that in mind, for the past month or so, Tina, my wife and I have been looking at plant based living, whether taking on this 28 day challenge to, as he says, a happier gut and a healthier you can produce something better for us, because as we all know, January is exceptionally hard. For me, I've never enjoyed January. I've often got extremely bluesy and a part of me does start to think each year, is it what I'm putting into my system? I don't drink that much at all anymore. I'm certainly running a lot more with thanks to Sonia Sullivan and the breaking 20 challenge that we're now on for the next eight weeks. But maybe this is the thing that's held me back, I wondered. Maybe. The reason why I've struggled to get healthy so often is because this final piece of the puzzle hasn't clicked. Well, who better than to answer all of my questions on this than the author of this unbelievable and, as as I said, best-selling book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, Dr. Alan Desmond. He's a lovely man who is, of course, a doctor who treats patients with a broad range of recent onset and long-standing problems affecting their stomach and bowel. And he has particular expertise in the assessment and treatment of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. He also looks at heartburn, reflux, you name it. This man knows about it and is treating it. But he wrote this book a year ago and released it a year ago it's probably three years in the works while also working on the front line during the very start of the pandemic here in the uk i talked to him about that about his journey to making this book his connection with the happy pair lads of david and stephen flynn friends of the show they'll be back soon and how if you're going to make this change you can do it for your whole family in a way that's manageable doable affordable and won't drive you crazy let's talk to him now it's dr alan desmond on an irish man abroad that's the small talk now let's go down to business now your program what's the big idea well they've grown to know the irish much better we've now got to know how largely their mind works i moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never have- 
has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Dr. Alan Desmond, it's great to have you on Irishman Abroad. There kind of never could be a better time to have you on. We're right in the middle of the hardest month of the year. There's no question of it. A lot of fellas and ladies listening to this will know that just the challenge of remaining positive in January is so it's so real. And I have often thought to myself, how much of the way I feel this month is down to what I'm eating. Can you say, just to start things off, can you say with certainty that if I change what I'm eating, I will feel better? I can say pretty confidently, Jarlath, and Happy New Year from one uh, Irishman abroad to another Irishman abroad. Happy New Year to you Thank and you. Happy Veganuary to you, you know. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. As, as a consultant gastroenterologist and a doctor, Jarlath, I graduated med school 20 years ago. You and I are about the same age, you know. I think I've got about three years on you. And for all of my career as a gastroenterologist, my patients have been asking me, their doctor, what should I eat? And I've been keen to give them evidence-based answers on that, you know. what? Rather than just saying, ah, don't worry about it, eat whatever you want, just take the tablets I'm prescribing or just take the drugs or just have the surgery. You know, all those things are wonderful. But when, when my patients have been asking me, um, what should I eat? I've been determined to give them evidence-based answers, Jarlett. And I mean, uh, over, gosh, over, you know, a century, nearly 120 years ago, Thomas Edison predicted that the doctor of the future would give no medicine, but would instruct their patients in the care of the human frame, in mm. diet, and in the cause and prevention of disease, right? So even Thomas Edison, in the pre-antibiotic era, and he'd seen a lot of tragedy in his life, was aware that diet and lifestyle were so important for health. And throughout the 20th century, that has really played out. And as our food systems have changed beyond all recognition, it's sad to say that not only have doctors completely failed to deliver on the duty of care they have to their patients when they ask that question, what should I eat? We've also seen that the food we eat, Jarlath, is now the single leading contributor to chronic disease and premature death. So food used to be about sustenance. It used to be about get, allowing us to survive. It used to be allowing, about allowing us to live to reproductive age so that we could pass on our genes and die happy in our 20s or 30s, you know, fado fado. But nowadays, um, we live a lot longer than that. And the food we eat is a major contributor to illness, time spent in hospital, you know, months cumulatively sitting in doctors' waiting rooms, coronary artery bypass, grafts, type 2 diabetes, injections of insulin, colorectal cancer, colonoscopies, perforated diverticular disease, gastroesophageal reflux disease, Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease. The standard Western diet, which has swept the world in high-income countries like the UK, Ireland, the US, Australia, Western Europe, is responsible for an awful lot of harm. And if you make the decision, Jarlett, to push back against it, and choose a healthier way of eating, a more evidence-based way of eating, then you'll begin to experience health benefits very quickly, even within the first few weeks. And those health benefits will keep on 
coming and I know you're training for this 20 well, minute 5k yeah. at the moment <laughs> you know that's, that was the first thought I had when I you know I picked up the book and sat down with my wife Tina who you know works very hard on providing supplementary research for the show and she definitely mm. would have been one of the hardest people to convince but you convinced her we're doing oh, it. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, no, we're doing it. And based on, you know, having her to be convinced, because at the end of the day, I'm I, I work such hours that she she is in charge of the kitchen, like she produces 90 percent of the meals in this house. So she her first thought was, uh, do I have time to do this? I mean, what the hell am I going to put on the plate if I'm not putting a chop on little Mikey's plate? But when she took the dive into it, just like I did, you mentioned dereliction of duty and duty of care. She said that it started to feel like, am I a bad parent if I don't do this? There has to be that part of the the job that you've been doing for the last few years, trying to convince people without browbeating them. And without making people feel like you're wagging your finger at them. How hard is that side of this? Well, it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you can't make people do something that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So so my ethos, Jared, throughout this whole journey has just been to give people the information. Right. Here's the information. Here's the practicalities of it. Now you choose what you'd like to do. So you can sit in a medical conference or you can come to a medical conference where I'm presenting and I might speak for 45 minutes about how, for for example, a talk I've often given, colorectal cancer, food and the gut microbiome, what your patients need to know. Okay, so colorectal cancer is a cancer, second leading cause of cancer in men and women in the UK, Ireland, the US, etc. Very prevalent cancer, probably affects between one in 15 and one in 20 people in their lifetime. We view it like so many other illnesses as inevitable. We all know people who've died of colorectal cancer. I lost an uncle to colorectal Mm -hmm. cancer. And, you know, in countries like the UK, Ireland, the US, we have colorectal cancer screening programs. So depending which country you live in at a certain age, you'll be asked to start having colonoscopies because colon, colon cancer is so common, we need to look for it in everybody when they get to a certain age. Wow. But yet, if you sat in that presentation, you would learn during that presentation that there are countries in the world who don't need a standard Western diet. And in areas like rural Africa, for example, or rural Japan, where people eat a traditional high fiber diet with very little meat or animal products at all, that colorectal cancer is almost unheard of. And you'll also show me, see me showing you studies where they've simply taken African-Americans and put them on a traditional rural African diet and measured in a very scientific way what happens to their gut microbiome and their mucosal proliferation rates and all that sort of thing, and how they can bring their colorectal cancer risk from high to low in just two weeks, not with a pill, not with a prescription, two not weeks. with an operation. In just two weeks, Charlotte, by changing the food that they eat and saying goodbye to roast beef and mashed potato and sausages and eggs for breakfast and saying hello to things like oats and sweet potato and whole grains and fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and legumes and help and using those foods to mm. build your meals three times a day. So I can show you all of that science. 
and then I can show you some delicious food and I can point you towards some resources. But really, I can't make it do it, can I? No. I can only give yeah. you the information. And people are so information hungry now. Yeah. And there is so much oh my goodness there's so much dietary confusion out there and in many ways that's very much due to the food and beverage industry and the animal agriculture industry who are constantly you know trying to muddy the waters it's an old playbook you know the uh cigarette producers did it for years you know getting doctors and researchers to put out papers saying well you know we've looked at the evidence at the uh institute for smoking wellness and we haven't we can't really see any damage from cigarettes you know if you look at the um some of the major medical journals 50 years ago genuinely you will find those papers you will find research published in peer-reviewed journals saying actually these uh cigarette alarmists <laughs> yeah you know they're they're, they're wrong you know because we've looked at it at and the, is it the same institute. though but it, like when you talk about colon cancer is it the same level of poison that you're putting into your system if it is producing that amount of cancer that there well, has to be analogous in terms of uh, lung cancer well i mean it, it's not as common a cancer and the link isn't as strong but i mean uh, five years ago the world health organization graded bacon and rashers and sausages as class one carcinogens alongside things like asbestos and cigarettes uh, known to cause cancer in humans and they graded red meat you know like beef and lamb and all that as a class two carcinogen probably causes cancer in humans and the cancer they were talking about was bowel cancer and it, across the uk and ireland there's probably about forty-five thousand people diagnosed with bowel cancer every year like i said earlier it's the second most common cancer in men and women behind breast and prostate okay it's a it's a big deal it, it destroys a lot of lives right yeah. but of those 45,000 cases, the, the, the vast majority are preventable by healthy diet and lifestyle. So of those cases, probably about 10,000 are just caused by eating bacon, rashers and steak and, and, and beef and lamb. That's the only reason that, that those 10,000 people got bowel cancer. Um, about half of them in total, well, maybe 55 to 60 percent will be due to one of three factors. Meat consumption, fiber deficiency, not eating enough fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, etc., or simply being obese. Um, being obese, unfortunately, is a pro-inflammatory state and increases the risk of various cancers, including colon cancer. Most of the rest of the colon cancer cases are caused by cigarettes and alcohol. Probably about 5 or 10% are purely down to genetic syndromes. Hmm. Okay? So I can give you all that information. The people listening right now who've had family members with bowel cancer can take that information and they can choose what they want to do with it. You know, I, I can't make people change uh, their, their diet. And I, I don't want to come across as preachy, but I, I'm just about sharing the facts. You know? Well, that's exactly what you do in the book that you released at, uh, now a year ago, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, 28 Days to a Happier Gut and a Healthier You. And, you know, co-authored this with uh, Bob Andrew Andrews. And you obviously had the time <laughs> to write it like so many of us. <laughs> but there, there is something I do want to talk to you about because there was part of that time wasn't available to you and that was the time that you spent working on the front lines for the NHS here in England. Can you talk to us about exactly how the conflict within you during that time must have been, wow, this is a real kind of honour to be able to help in this moment 
and how terrifying it must have been. Well, you're absolutely right. And to be honest, the book would never have gotten finished if it wasn't for the pandemic. Because when the pandemic hit, I'd already signed a contract to write book, but I was just beginning when COVID hit. And I just mapped it out and suddenly the world turned upside down, didn't it? Mm. And I dropped my gastroenterology practice and began working on one of our COVID-19 wards at the hospital. And if you throw your mind back now, this is when we didn't really know how to treat this condition. We didn't really know how to contain it. We didn't have any therapeutics. We didn't know that steroids worked. We didn't have any of the new antivirals that we're using now. There was no vaccinations. And everything shut down. It was like the twilight zone, you know. It's Dublin City. It was empty. It was like something from a sci-fi movie. And during that period of time, I was working three days on the COVID ward. You do 13-hour shifts. Then I'd have three days off and three days on standby. So I was going from the mayhem of working on a COVID ward to the absolute deathly silence of living in the little village where I live in, in southwest of England. And my wife and children had gone to live with the in-laws hmm. um, because I didn't want to be coming home having worked on the ward you know, filled with patients suffering with this new disease and then have to come home and hug my children, you know. Yeah. So my wife and kids left for about eight weeks, which brought its own challenges. But in fact, um, during those quiet days, I sat down and I wrote the book and it was quite therapeutic, actually. Well, and, I mean, imagine you needed, you know, that time to yourself, because I'd imagine that some of the things you saw, like you could get PTSD from. Well, very much so. I mean, it's been, a, gosh, I don't want to overstate, you know, because I mean, everyone's been through a traumatic couple of years, you know, but, uh, you know, I arrived into work to find that our old ward had been completely transformed, you know, new doors built, new isolation units, everyone wearing full pro uh, protective kit, and all of these poor patients. Um, I remember one elderly gentleman who will always stay with me, his wife had died of COVID-19 a few days before on our ward. And I went to meet this man in, on, in the morning and he was in his, you know, late 70s, early 80s, but he's a fairly robust chap, didn't want to be in the bed at all. You know, he was in the isolation room with all the kit on us and all the rest of it. But he was walking around the room and he was joking with me, you know, and even although he could only see my eyes, he said, oh, you're very young to be a doctor, you know, all that kind of banter, you know. And, um, at that time, it was taking us about six hours or seven hours to get back the results as to whether someone had COVID or not. So I went back to see him at the end of the ward round to let him know that the test had come back. And I just went into him and he was lying in the bedyard. I think he looked like a man who'd just done a 100 meter sprint. You know, he was gasping for every breath. And I had to lean in and said, look, I'm very sorry, sir. You know, you have the you have COVID-19. You've got the same illness that your wife passed away from a few days ago. And he just got enough breath to say, make it quick, doc. You know, he looked at me, said, make it quick, doc. And he passed away shortly after that. And those sort of scenes were very commonplace at that time. I mean, we remember that nursing homes, the elderly, disabled, clinically vulnerable people were hit incredibly hard during that first wave of the pandemic. And I remember after dealing with that gentleman and being aware that his wife had died a few days previously, I remember leaving the hospital at the end of my shift that day and I was just walking around the car park aimlessly. You know, there was no one at home anyway, mm. you know. So I was just walking around the car park and I was thinking, how unfair is it to this gentleman and his, his wife who've just been erased from this planet? And at the time, there was people, public commentators saying, oh, it's only the elderly who are getting affected, you know, 
it's only the elderly. And I was like, it's not only the elderly, you know, it's it's people who are being affected by this thing. But of course, uh, as I was going home, then I was writing this book and I was thinking, look, is this book even going to be relevant mm. anymore? But uh, we learned very early during the pandemic, we saw this data come out of China very early on, you know, we saw that the same diseases related to standard Western diet and lifestyle, such as heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, various cancers. If you were living with one of these conditions, and they're all uh, largely completely preventable, we already knew that they took years off your healthy life expectancy. And during the COVID pandemic, we saw exactly the same thing, that if you were living with one of those diseases, you were far more likely to be admitted to hospital, far more likely to die from COVID-19. We saw that in China. We saw it again later in um, 2020 uh, when the pandemic reached New York City and New York City became the epicenter of the epicenter. Your, your listeners remember seeing those scenes mm. that looked like something off MASH or, a, you know, a, a newsreel from a war zone, you know. And those A&E departments were filling up with people with comorbidities, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart disease, various cancers, heart failure, accounted for almost 90% of the people admitted during New York's initial peak. And we saw the same situation here in the UK and Ireland, you know, in, in early 2020. There was about 60,000 people in the UK hospitalised with COVID. And one in four died and one in six ended up in the ITU. And almost 80% were living with chronic diseases and obesity, uh, a body mass index of greater than 40. If you were admitted to hospital with COVID-19 and a BMI greater than 40, you're twice as likely to pass away, sadly. And that's a category that applies to 29% of UK adults. So it, even before the pandemic, many individuals were looking at their dietary practices and choosing to eat less plants and more, excuse me, choosing to eat less meat and more plants um, for health reasons. And they're absolutely right. So we can talk a bit more about that later if you'd like, why that is a healthy, healthy, healthy thing to do. But as we, as we went into that pandemic, I thought, well, look, preventing these chronic illnesses is more important than ever. Mm. And then in the middle of 2020, the United Nations issued a report about pandemics and their report was titled how to break the chain it was um, zoonotic diseases and how to break the chain of transmission how to prevent the next pandemic the next covid-19 and the number one thing the united nations said that we can all do on an individual basis but on a national basis as well to reduce the risk of future horrible pandemics like covid-19 is to step away from animal products, Charlotte, because the dietary habits that require, you know, 80 to 90 to 100 kilograms of meat per person per year, two to 300 eggs per person per year, and liters and liters and liters of cow's milk per person per year mean the demand that tens of billions of farm animals are raised and slaughtered every year for human consumption. And the sheer volume required means that they have to be raised, mostly have to be raised in inhumane, unnatural, indoor conditions in close proximity to each other, filled full of all sorts of antibiotics and growth promoters and other medications. And these environments, these chicken sheds and feedlots, etc., are a perfect way to create resistant zoonotic infections. And as long as humans are eating like this, 
And as long as humans are having to work in close proximity to these diseased animals, the pandemics will keep coming and keep coming. And that's just the truth of it. And that's that's what the United Nations told us to do. I don't I don't know if you've uh, watched the uh, Netflix movie Don't Look Up yet. Uh, oh, I saw it. Yeah, just last week. <laughs> the, uh... It does seem very similar to what you were saying to me, that this is the asteroid. It is obvious that it is going to hit. In fact, for a lot of people, it's already hit and they're feeling Mm. the impacts. Does it ever feel like you're the Leonardo DiCaprio character in that movie (laughs) and that you're beating your head off the wall a little bit? You must get tired of eye rollers and, ah, yeah, but I love steak, guys. Like, how do you find the energy in yourself to keep pushing forward with this? Well, ultimately, it's a very optimistic me- optimistic message, Jareth, you know. It's a very optimistic message that I'm selling, and mm. um, that most chronic disease can be prevented, that you can eat in a way that fosters a healthier gut, a healthier gut microbiome, and makes you feel happier on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> so that's the reason why it, it's a positive yeah, message. Yeah, it's not extinction. So it's the opposite. It's not extinction. Yeah. I'm telling you, you can change it today, and you can change your approach to food today, and you'll feel the benefits very, very quickly. And it's funny you mentioned Don't Look Up. It's it's uh, an incredible movie, isn't it? But I, I, often, I used to refer to this as um, avoiding Sarah Connor syndrome, you know, <laughs> yeah. Terminator 2 at the very start of it, you know, poor old Sarah Connor's institutionalized. <laughs> and she's explaining to everyone how uh, the uh, Armageddon is coming and they think she's nuts. <laughs> it's, uh, I'd say, yeah, yeah, do everything you can to avoid Sarah Connor syndrome. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I wondered when was the last time you remembered being in the camp of those that aren't on board yet. I mean, you studied at UCC, is that correct? Uh, That's right. And I mean, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what what you were doing and what you were eating uh, through your college years. Ah, sure. I was a, a standard university student. You know, I'd, I'd eat anything you put in front of me, basically. You know, Findus crispy pancakes done in the toaster, you know, would be one thing, you know. Uh, that'd be, you know, you just have to do them twice. Otherwise, they don't cook all the way through, yeah, for you know. Safety. <laughs> yeah, for safety. Yeah, for health and safety reasons. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But I mean, all the way through, um, I, I mean, I had been exposed to a healthier mode of eating as a young man. My my uh, my sister, my younger sister, Claudine, uh, turned vegan in the early 90s, you know, and it was very unusual. And we'd all be sitting down to our, you know, our sausages and mashed potatoes and beans or whatever, you know. And uh, whereas my sister would be brewing up a, a, a witch's brew, a big pot filled with lentils and quinoa and bouillon and, you know, all these amazing plant-based foods that we know are healthy for you. And when we were children or, or teenagers, we would all sit down for our dinner. We'd joke and say that Claudine was having a big bowl of vegan mush, you know. What age was she at that time? Oh, probably about 16 or 17 when she made that change, you know. And did everyone view it as an act of rebellion or or was it like, no, makes sense? I think everyone just looked at it as being a bit quirky, Mm. you know, and my parents were concerned, would she get enough food? But when we saw the size of the bowls of food she was eating, we were reassured. That's the wonderful thing about a plant based diet. If you like food, uh, you can eat a lot of food because the, the meals are naturally more dense in nutrients, mm. but less dense in calories. So you can eat more food. And, but I remember um, being in university. And then a few years later, my sister came to university and myself, my older brother had been through the same university, UCC. And I remember introducing uh, my uh, sister to one of my good friends who was friends with me and my older brother in, in university. My brother did law. 
And uh, my friend said to me, oh, nice to meet you. And I or said to my sister, nice to meet you. He said, you obviously got all the thin, good-looking genes in the family, you know. <laughs> and I, I know he was saying that to wind me up, but I, I said, actually, there's truth in that, you know. It's like at that time, my sister was probably the only member of my family who had a really healthy body mass index, you know, who wasn't living with a degree of overweight or maybe even obesity in the case of my parents, my older brother. And the only, I mean, we were all grown up in the same household. Hmm. Um, but she just had a different approach to food and had been doing so since her teens and was healthier for it, you know. So I was exposed to that as as, as a young man, but again, never really made the connection. But it but didn't, it yeah, was, that's what's amazing is that, like you say, never really made the connection that, you know, you're studying medicine. And mm. there's your friend pointing at you, your sister looks healthier than you. I just think it's so interesting that you obviously had a time when you, Alan Desmond, wasn't on board I mean, of course. do you remember of course. what was holding you back? Like, what what archaic thoughts did you hold that you can recall right now that were the last things that needed to fall? Well, I guess it's the same things that hold people back in general, isn't it? And I mean, when people look at eating a plant-based diet, they think, oh, will I get enough protein? Will I get enough vitamins and minerals? Will I become somehow deficient and unhealthy and weak. There's so much, as I said, false narratives put forward by the meat and dairy industry. There's this artificial link that's been produced or cultured or created whereby we link meat consumption to masculinity. And all of those things, you know, really would have informed my food choices. But as I said, as, as a student in your 20s, journey, your, your food choices aren't really that informed, are they? That they're, they're just, you know, me hungry, me eat, you know. <laughs> but I mean, like a lot of people as you head into your 30s and 40s and particularly as a doctor, as I said, I mean, my patients were asking me for years, what should I eat? And when you look at the evidence, so, you know, for example, uh, the thing that attracted me into practicing medicine uh, excuse me, into practicing gastroenterology is a group of conditions called inflammatory bowel diseases, right? Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And as a young doctor in my early 20s, you know, you rotate through all the different specialties, you know, you do, you know, nephrology, neurology, care of the elderly, etc. And then I rotated into gastroenterology. So I was the most junior doctor on a team of doctors and nurses and dietitians and all the rest of it, taking care of hospitalized patients with severe gastrointestinal problems. And I'd gotten quite used to the fact that most of the patients in the hospital, compared to me in my 20s, were old folks, right? They were in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. And that kind of made sense because if you're living in Ireland, you, you expect that people in those age groups will develop heart disease and cancers and kidney failure and all that sort of thing. But in, in the gastroenterology ward, I found people the same age as me and younger who had conditions called Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and sections of their digestive tracts were seemingly permanently inflamed and dysfunctional. And my job was to put them on immune suppressants and steroids and learn how to do camera tests, examine the lining of their bowel to help their diagnosis. And then when, when the medicine didn't work, I would refer them over to the surgeons to have disease segments of their bowel removed. 
And this disease had such a dramatic impact on their quality of life. And the medications we had at that time were getting better. And that was very interesting to me because we could take people. And, you know, if you can't enjoy your food, Jarlath, and you can't sit down for a meal, your quality of life just becomes dreadful. It's mm. so integral to being a functioning member of society. You know, food is so important. And if you can't sit down and enjoy a meal and, you you know, you're hungry, but you can't eat, it has a real negative impact on, on your life. And, you know, helping patients to regain their health uh, with the those medical conditions, primarily through medications, really brought me into that specialty. But I remember when I was, a, you know, the most junior member being on the ward round with my boss, the professor, and going to see a young man who had Crohn's disease, he'd just been diagnosed, couldn't eat, couldn't drink, and he was on day three of powerful steroid medications, and he was getting better, and he was feeling hungry again. And he asked my boss, um, he said, look, yeah, I'm feeling better now. My appetite's coming back. Are there any foods that I should eat? Any foods that I should avoid, you know, to help? And uh, his mum, the patient's mum was there too and looked up at us, the doctors, expectantly because patients know there's a connection. People mm. know intuitively there's yeah. got to be a connection. Here. And my boss said, oh, it doesn't matter. Eat whatever you like. Calories are calories. You know, do you like McDonald's? Because we need to get you to fatten you up, you know? <laughs> and it, it made no sense to the patient. I mean, young guy, kind like of eyes lit up, you know? Do you like McDonald's? And the mother looked a bit shocked. And, you know, at that very early stage of my career, I thought, that doesn't sound entirely right, but it must be right, you know? And as a very young doctor, I, I, I said the same thing to my patients. But as I went on in my career and started treating patients with inflammatory bowel disease as a part of my professional life, I wanted to give patients, because every patient asks you that, without exception, um, I wanted to give patients evidence-based answers. And then if you look at the evidence around, and I'll just stick with inflammatory bowel disease now, because it's a good illustrative uh, point, you see that a standard Western diet, a high meat, high dairy, high processed food, high junk food diet, triggers inflammatory bowel disease, and dietary fiber protects from inflammatory bowel disease. And the more animal protein you consume, the more likely you are to get inflammatory bowel disease. We know that the Western diet, carnivorous diet, meat-heavy diets are strongly implicated in triggering both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So the genetics are there, Jarlath, like so many chronic diseases. But in many ways, it's diet and lifestyle that help to pull the trigger. And after many years of reading lots and lots of research, when my patients asked me about this, I gradually came up with this list and I would say, well, look, try and avoid processed food and junk food, reduce your meat intake, particularly red meat and bacon, cut right down on dairy and dairy fat. You know, lactose intolerance is a big issue among patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Don't have the junk foods because the emulsifiers and the maltodextrins and the food additives that are in there have really negative impacts on your gut microbiome. And try to eat more fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains and all the rest of it when you feel well enough to eat those foods. So in short, I was telling them to eat an unprocessed and more plant-based diet or a whole food and plant-based diet. But it went beyond Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease. Because when you look at all the conditions that I spend my time treating, like diverticular disease, irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, various cancers, as we said, colon cancer, esophageal cancer, cirrhosis of the liver caused not by alcohol, but by food, you see the same answers. You know, more plants better, less animal products better, less junk food better. And there just came a point really, Jarlett, for me in about 2016, having read all the evidence around these health benefits that I realized that not only is this a healthier way for my patients and members of the public to eat, but it's got to be better for me as well. And it's the healthiest possible way for me, my family, my friends to eat as well. Uh, so my wife and I jumped in 
I believe it was in 2016, we made the jump in to eating a whole food plant-based diet. Um, made friends with Stephen and David Flynn and the Happy Pair. I'm sure you know the boys. Yeah, uh, they were Getting great friends of the show. Us. Yep, friends of the show, great guys. Um, their recipes and all the rest were very helpful. It was also very helpful for me to uh, connect with some guys, you know, just normal Irish blokes about my own age group who were doing this, you know, who were, you know, great, great exemplars, you know, Ireland's fittest family, Jarlath, you know. And, and they haven't and they haven't had meat or dairy for 20 years. I definitely don't want to move by the lads and I definitely don't want to move by the family aspect of this. And there, I also want to speak to you on behalf of the athletes and the runners uh, in the second half of my conversation with Dr. Alan Desmond over on Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. We're going to get into all of that and maybe get a few answers on the more practical end of this, maybe, you know, you can set us a couple of simple rules that if if we're going to do this, how do we keep it as simple as possible and convince us that it can be done? But that's it for the first half of my conversation. I'd love you to come over and support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad to hear the rest as we go into the deep, juicy stuff on how to make this possible. But thank you, uh, Dr. Allen, for the first half of our conversation. Well, that's the first half of this discussion with Dr. Alan Desmond. If you enjoyed it, you will love the second half when we get into what this change can mean for athletes and people who have an active sporting lifestyle or are trying to do something like I'm trying to do with the Breaking 20 challenge. I am, of course, still running for Jigsaw.ie, my chosen charity partner. You can support my bid to run 2000 kilometers in the space of 12 months. I've only got a month left to do it, but we're nearly there closing in on 2000 kilometers and have to say the breaking 20 challenge has given this an extra oomph in the last month or so come over and support it on idonate.ie just search my name or irishman abroad and to hear the second half of this conversation with the brilliant dr alan desmond just head over to patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad big thanks to tina my wife for the extra research she did on today's episode to mikey for making it all possible john maher Brian Connolly on sound and all of our supporters over on Patreon. Why not treat yourself to the full back catalogue of Irishmen Abroad episodes and bonus content every single week. Extra episodes with Sonia and Marion. More than enough for you to choose from for the new year. You'll never run out of stuff to listen to. It's all there waiting for you over on Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad.